Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Rabbi Omi Azikaway, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikaway. Today is Saturday, January 13th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting uh, from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Later on, uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the reports uh, that two United States naval soldiers have gone missing off the coast of Somalia. Airstrikes have continued against the people of Yemen. Russia and China at the United Nations Security Council have rejected the U.S.-U.K. bombing of Yemen. And resistance forces in Yemen have pledged a painful response to the attacks launched by imperialism. In the second hour, we look at demonstrations taking place in South Africa in support of the genocidal case, legal case, uh, against uh, the state of Israel. We continue to analyze the lawsuit uh, by the South African government against Tel Aviv. Finally, uh, we pay tribute to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on his 95th birthday, which is uh, commemorated as a federal holiday in the United States uh, this weekend. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, with uh, the music of Um Kaltun. Uh, this is from a live concert uh, in January of 1970 in Egypt. Let's listen in.
welcome back. And uh, that was uh, Um Kaltoon and her orchestra from a live concert uh, recorded uh, in January of 1970 in Cairo, Egypt. You're listening to the Pan-African Journal, worldwide uh, radio broadcast for Saturday, uh, January 13th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios uh, in uh, downtown Detroit. I'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, uh, to yet another edition of uh, the Pan-African Journal. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of our program, our lead story. And these are some of the headlines in today's uh, Pan-African Journal. Our lead story uh, deals uh, with the announcement uh, by the United States military that two uh, Navy soldiers uh, have gone missing off the coast of Somalia. Ongoing search and rescue operations are reportedly underway uh, to locate and the missing uh, sailors. The United States Central Command issued a statement indicating that two members of the U.S. Navy are unaccounted for in the vicinity of the Somalia coast. On the evening of January the 11th, uh, two U.S. Navy sailors were reported missing at sea while conducting operations off the coast of Somalia. Search and rescue operations are currently undergoing and ongoing to locate uh, the two sailors, the statement said. The concise statement provided no details, no further details regarding the activities of the missing sailors, except mentioning that they were, quote, forward deployed, unquote, to the U.S. Navy 5th Fleet Area of Operations, where they were engaged in, quote, supporting a wide variety of missions, unquote. Quote, out of respect for the families affected, we will not release further information at this time, unquote, the statement said. The declaration of the missing U.S. Navy members comes amid heightened U.S. actions against Yemeni armed forces in the Red Sea region over the past two weeks. Uh, Tensions escalated further in recent days as Washington launched airstrikes and missile attacks against Yemen. On its account, uh, Yemeni armed forces confirmed undertaking operations against U.S. vessels in the Red Sea adjacent to Somalia, uh, adding a complex dimension to the unfolding situation. The U.S. uh, maintains a military presence in Somalia, in the Horn of Africa, and engages uh, in what it describes as limited military operations of development occurring three days after the Battle of Mogadishu of 1993. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And in other news, uh, the U.S. Central Command, CENTCOM, confirmed uh, today that U.S. forces carried out a strike that targeted an alleged radar site used by the Yemeni Ansar Allah movement in Yemen. This strike was conducted by the USS Kearney, the DDG-64, using Tomahawk land attack missiles and was a follow-on action on a specific military target associated with strikes taken on January 12, designed to degrade the Houthi ability uh, to attack maritime vessels, including commercial vessels. That's according to the Central Command. They said this on their formerly known as Twitter account, now known as X. Al-Mahadeen, corresponded in Yemen, confirmed uh, earlier today that airstrikes targeted the vicinity of Sinai Airport and its vicinity north of the Yemeni capital. Al-Mahadeen, bureau chief in Yemen, also confirmed that airstrikes or missile strikes targeted the al 
Dalami, a base near Sana Airport following Friday's U.S.-U.K.-led strikes against various areas in Yemen. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And in response uh, to uh, the United States and the United Kingdom bombing of uh, the West Asian state of Yemen, uh, Russia's representative to the United Nations says the strikes carried out by the United States and the U.K. on Yemen have, quote, nothing in common, unquote, with the right to self-defense, unquote. The United Nations Security Council uh, held uh, earlier today an emergency session in New York City called uh, for urgently uh, by Russia to discuss the widening crisis in the Middle East and the recent U.S.-British aggression on Yemen. Russia's representative to the United Nations, Vasily Nebenzia, called the joint U.S.-U.K. strikes on Yemen, quote, blatant armed aggression against another country, unquote. Commenting on the airstrikes, Nebenzia uh, considered that protecting commercial ships is one matter, and bombing other countries is a different and illegal matter. Benzia mentioned that the so-called international coalition of several countries launched air and naval attacks, including Tomahawk missiles against Yemeni cities, including Taiz, Sana, and Sadaf. Quote, these coalition states all carried out a mass strike on Yemeni territory. I'm not talking about an attack on some group within the country, but an attack on the people of the country on the whole. Aircraft were used, warships and submarines, unquote, he said. The Russian diplomat said the same destruction has uh, been unfolding in Gaza and warned that the war is expanding in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden, adding uh, that the coalition threatens to expand the confrontation further without regard uh, to international law. And finally, Mohammed al-Bukati, a member of the Ansarullah Political Bureau, uh, told al-Mahadeen that the United States and Britain, quote, made a mistake in waging war on Yemen, unquote. Mohammed El-Bakati, a member of the Politburo of the Yemeni Ansar Allah movement, affirmed that the battle in Yemen is not against American or British people, but against the Zionist ruling gang in Washington and London, adding that the U.S.-U.K. decision is not in favor of either country. Speaking to Al-Mahadeen, Al-Bukati addressed both the American and British sides, saying, quote, you need to reconsider your calculations and learn from the past experiences, unquote, emphasizing that the United States and Britain, quote, made a mistake in waging war on Yemen, unquote. He also underlined that Yemen has put a set of targets that depend on the U.S. escalation and international stances and that there uh, will be painful responses. Al-Bukati noted that the Yemeni armed forces previously only targeted maritime navigation associated with the Zionist entity. The Yemeni official mentioned that today, American and British ships no longer dare to cross the Red Sea, threatening retaliation for the action of the two countries. Al-Bukhati further highlighted that the military operations carried out by the Yemeni armed forces against targets in Israel and the Red Sea inflicted significant losses for both the American and the Israeli sides. With that, uh, we're going to, to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of uh, the Pan-African Journal. And concluding this segment of our program, we'd like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. 
The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Uh, since then, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do is go to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, all you need to do is go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And for the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast for today, uh, Saturday, January 13, 2024, you can listen to this program again and share with other potential listeners. And there's also another 1,300 archived editions of the Pan-African Journal, worldwide radio broadcast on the Pan-African Radio Network. This is Abayomi Azikwe, and uh, we'll uh, take a break. Uh, we'll be back uh, with more of our program for this week. Got to find somebody 
to love and you're listening to the pan-african journal worldwide radio broadcast uh, for saturday on uh, january 13 2024 and uh, of course as we heard uh, the united states for two consecutive days has engaged in airstrikes against uh, the west asian state of yemen uh, due to their solidarity efforts uh, with the palestinian people amid the siege and genocide in gaza let's listen uh, to a report about the demonstrations against uh, the U.S. airstrikes taking place in Sana'a, the capital of Yemen. Hundreds of thousands of Yemenis in the capital Sana'a have protested against U.S. and British attacks. They were seen holding up Palestinian flags and placards bearing the Houthis' official slogan. We reject Yemen as a battleground for foreign attacks. We want our country to be free from disputes and ongoing conflict. The goal of the United States is to maintain its unjust dominance throughout the Arab region. We as Yemenis fear that the war will continue. Yemen has been through years of war. People's lives have been greatly affected. We spoke with a local resident who was present at the demonstrations in the Yemeni capital of Sana'a. Here's what they had to say. Um, so here in the Yemeni capital where uh, the protest just finished, this was a protest that took place in the 70 square of the Yemeni capital. 
um, just uh, about five miles away from where the attacks took place last night, the U.S. and the British-led assault on uh, Yemeni uh, installations or military installations, as the U.S. claims. Of course, the Houthis on Salah, they've uh, stated today that none of their military installations were damaged and all that was hit was empty fields and uh, empty uh, uh, facilities that did not possess any weapons whatsoever. Um, the Houthi officials, as they mentioned today in the protest, they are going to continue to block and prevent Israeli-linked ships from crossing Bab al from crossing the Red Sea despite the U.S. attacks. And even if the U.S. and the British government decide to escalate their attacks here in, here in on Yemen, that's not going to prevent the military operations in the Red Sea, which are directed to target Israeli-linked ships, according to uh, the Ansara Law military spokesperson. Um, and they've also vowed revenge for the attacks that occurred last night. Um, the Houthi officials, they mentioned that all U.S. and British targets in the Red Sea will be targeted. And um, they will most likely be targeted with drones and ballistic missiles, according to the Ansara Law military spokesperson. Let's cross over now to Abdul Latif Al-Wesley reporting live for us over the phone from Sana. Hello there. The U.S. carried out another strike against Yemen's Houthi fighters on Friday, targeting a radar site. Dozens of U.S. and British strikes have struck other facilities inside Yemen on Thursday. From where you are, what's the latest on these attacks and what kind of response is expected from the Houthis? Thank you so much for the opportunity. Actually, the Yemeni people has been uh, supporting the Palestinian people since the beginning of the uh, October, uh, uh, and the Yemeni have been continuing supporting the Palestinians. As Yemeni have been through uh, also a uh, war for nine years, so they feel what is going there in the uh, Palestinian territory. The uh, Yemeni people are supporting the Yemeni army and pushing the Yemeni army to carry out their attacks. Major attacks against the uh, Israeli, uh, the British, the Americans, the Soviet states. Uh, we want the uh, Yemeni army to respond, uh, and they do respond. And uh, the uh, larger attacks against the uh, the Israelis and the Red Sea. Uh, the Yemeni uh, people uh, have supported the Yemeni army in its attacks, and they said that uh, we can't just keep watching Palestinians being killed by the Israelis in open air. We have to do something. And I believe that uh, the strike uh, that is carried out by the uh, Britain, uh, by Britain and the uh, Abdul, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much, Abdul Latif Al-Wasli, speaking to us from the Yemeni capital. Sana, we do apologize for the quality of the sound. Welcome back. And uh, that was a report uh, from Sana'a, the capital of Yemen, as uh, millions of uh, Yemeni people demonstrate against the U.S.-U.K. airstrikes against their country due uh, to their principled uh, solidarity uh, with the people of Palestine. Also in South Africa, in Cape Town, there was a demonstration earlier today outside the Israeli consulate there. Uh, left outside, In fact, it was outside the U.S. consulate in Cape Town uh, since there's been a break in diplomatic relations between the United States, uh, between the uh, South African uh, government and the state of Israel. But the United States is 
so close uh, to the state of Israel. In fact, the state of Israel acts as a proxy for U.S. imperialism uh, in West Asia and in North Africa. Let's listen to this report about a demonstration outside the U.S. consulate earlier today in Cape Town, Republic of South Africa, which has filed a legal case against the state of Israel uh, for violation of the Genocide Convention. As the International Court of Justice is deliberating on South Africa versus Israel's genocide case, a group of pro-Palestine activists have demonstrated outside the U.S. consulate in Johannesburg they are calling on America to stop funding the genocide in Gaza. SABC's Khalifa Kumala has more. A show of force outside the U.S. diplomatic mission in Johannesburg. These pro-Palestine activists are unflinching in their support for the people of Gaza. They've thrown their weights behind South Africa's case before the International Court of Justice against Israel's military operation in Gaza. The first day, definitely, what South Africa did, I have been contacted by so many friends, colleagues and comrades from Gaza and Palestine, appreciating what the South Africans did, actually, at the ICJ. I mean, uh, even us Palestinians wouldn't have even defended the Palestinian cause and the suffering of the Palestinian Gaza the, the, the South African legal team did. And the reason is very clear, because you've been there. You South Africans suffered from apartheid. Israel is an apartheid state. They've appealed to the U.S. to stop funding the genocide in Gaza. Well, we've sent a message clearly to Israel, we've sent a message to the United States, and we've sent a message to the people of Palestine. Israel, firstly, the message to you is that your apartheid is going to end just as we ended apartheid in South Africa. So we're going to ensure that everything is done for the remainder of our lives for Palestine to be free, just as South Africa has managed to achieve freedom. For the United States, stop arming Israel, stop funding them to the teeth, step away from supporting them because they are complicit. The United States is complicit in the murder of every Palestinian in this genocide. We are here because uh, we are now in the fourth month uh, of uh, untold horrors and now told horrors of the genocide in Gaza uh, and that, that takes place within the context of a 40, uh, since 1948, of a 76-year uh, apartheid occupation of Palestine that was genocidal, that began with the Nakba, with the catastrophe, with the ethnic cleansing and forced removal of Palestinians. Even the healthcare workers came and they say the situation is dire in Gaza. We are here present as a solidarity and advocacy group for the rights of Palestinians to show our support on this global day where we know the world has been watching the ICJ case and the world has in these preceding months been watching what has been happening to the people of Palestine. So as South Africans as well, we are standing here to, to call for justice and to call for ceasefire and to voice our support of the Palestinian people as well as South Africa's legal team who from our own history of apartheid has recognize the injustice being committed against the Palestinian people. This is yet another initiative by South Africa to show solidarity with the people of Palestine. So the demonstrators here, they are clear, they are calling for a permanent ceasefire in Gaza. Kailisha Kumalo, SABC News, Johannesburg. 
A group of around 40 lawyers from South Africa, led by Tabeja-based law firm Vickers van Rensburg attorneys, have submitted a notice of intention to file a civil matter against the United States of America's government for its role in the ongoing conflict between Israel and Palestine. The lawyers are accusing the U.S. government of being liable and complicit in its support of Israel. The group says it will use the outcomes of the case filed by South Africa against Israel that was heard in the International Court of Justice in The Hague as a basis for their civil claim. The action that's currently happening at the ICJ is a precursor to some extent uh, if the court finds that Israel has convened uh, the international laws that will almost create a basis for us to pursue a civil matter in America uh, as well as Britain. Uh, we've given notice of intention to both the UK as well as the USA that we intend pursuing civil action against the governments for their complicit conduct in this Israeli process and the bombardment within Gaza as well as the West Bank. Um, we have obtained lawyers in both America and the USA who is willing to assist on a pro bono basis to pursue this matter in both countries and hopefully justice proof will prevail at the end of the day. And in Cape Town, a large group of uh, Palestinian supporters gathered in a show of solidarity with the people of Gaza. Protesters called for a permanent ceasefire between Israel and Hamas, saying human rights of innocent people are being undermined. Humanity. It's a very positive sign for humanity that humanity is conquering inhumanity. That justice is beating injustice. That truth is going to conquer falsehood. And I'm very proud to be a South African today. To see that for one, for 99 days, South Africans have stood up in very difficult circumstances to sustain a movement for 99 days. Supporting somebody who's not even part of you. You don't even know who they are. You don't even know any individual person there. They're from another country, from when they oppressed. South Africans identify what oppression, apartheid, injustice, genocide, ethnic cleansing, collective punishment, punishment and settler mentality. You know, it's a great day that so many South Africans have come up to support the Palestinian people. And the Palestinian people are fully aware of this support that they're getting from South Africans. When we took the stand to go to the ICJ, this overwhelming support and the joy that came from Palestinians, not only from Gaza, from all over the world, was incredible. South Africa took the right decision, they were on the moral high ground, and as a country and a people, we need to show our government that took the stand to go to the ICJ and, our, and the Palestinian people that we stand with them. And we identify and we thank the people from Cape Town, from South Africa, from Africa, and from all the countries across the world that are standing with Palestine, it's the right thing to do. This conversation a bit more further, we're now joined by Alaya via International Relations uh, Analyst, and she joins us via our video link. Alaya, thank you so much for joining us this evening here on SABC News. I mean, we've just seen those uh, inserts uh, with a number of protests taking place, and of course, uh, continuing uh, with what we've seen in the ICJ. I want to start off here with uh, the protests in which we saw at the U.S. consulate. What do you make of, you know, those amount of people following uh, that uh, case in the ICJ and now taking it uh, to the streets and taking it outside the U.S. consulate uh, to show their dissatisfaction uh, with uh, the war in Gaza? 
I think on the one hand, it's a, it's an incredible show of solidarity by South Africa. You know, we've we've been protesting as a country alongside several other nations across the world um, since uh, you know October the seventh, and you know even prior that, South Africa's um, moral stance has been very clear on Palestine you know, uh, for, for for decades. But also our our uh, country's foreign policy has been exceptionally clear on our stance that we you know support a Palestine, we support their right to self determination and to to access every uh, human right and freedom that we are afforded on a daily basis. I think you know um, South Africa taking its court, uh, taking its case to the ICJ is is uh, uh, you know the country taking it taking solidarity to another level and you know. Um, leading a global effort, a global movement uh, to say that, you know, there are several mechanisms, um, international institutions and international, you know, legal and humanitarian principles that we must use and we must use to to enforce a level of accountability, not only against Israel, you know, in this case, in the, in the you know, for its actions in the last three months, but more, re- you know, uh, more recently and more prevalently, the U.S. and all those who have, you know, uh, supported Israel, whether it's financially or militarily. And I think, you know, protesters outside the U.S. Uh, consulate or the the U.S. Embassy, sorry, um, are saying just that. I think the events of the past uh, 72 hours where the U.S. and the U.K. have um, not only expressed their solidarity with Israel and, um, you know, committed to even more financial and military support, but have gone as far as uh, bombing Yemen, you know, in 72 different locations. It's, you know, South Africa, South Africans are saying that this is enough. You, the, the, it, it cannot be where you stand up for what is morally uh, considered right on a, on a legal basis, on a, um, again, on a moral basis, and, and the U.S. and the U.K. and, you know, Western nations uh, attack you in, in such a way. I think South Africans are saying enough is enough. Mm, and on that note, uh, speaking about South Africans, I mean, we've also seen their group of around uh, 40 lawyers are saying that uh, they want to file a civil uh, a claim or a civil matter against uh, the U.S. as well as uh, uh, the United Kingdom. And, uh, you know, for the statements that, uh, you know, even some of the protesters were saying uh, that uh, uh, they are, especially the U.S., they are complicit uh, in the killings of the people of uh, Gaza. What do you have to say about, uh, you know, uh, this new action where uh, now they are trying to rope in other countries now uh, for their part uh, in uh, uh, the, the tensions in the Middle East. I think on the one hand, uh, you know, I salute Vikas von Rensburg attorneys for their um, willingness to hold not more than just Israel accountable for its actions, but recognizing that this, the, the, you know, the conflict of the past three to four months has, you know, context, has immense, immense context, and, and that context includes the actions, um, diplomatic, military, and financial of uh, countries like the United States and the U- United Kingdom that continue to fund and support Israel not only with you know military and and finances but also in international fora like the United Nations Security Council. So I think as as the um, the representative of the, the attorney said, uh, this the case South Africa has laid in the ICJ is definitely a precursor. Um, for, for more forms of or higher levels of accountability to come, because I think what South Africa is saying is that yes, a ceasefire um, now is is uh, is of high most importance, but we're it, it's it's a question of not forgetting. It's a question of accountability and and uh, consequences behind those actions must uh, must occur. And I think you know uh, uh, this is 
an immense, immense uh, diplomatic precedent set by South Africa. You know, it's many people have said in the past couple of days following the, the um, events at the ICJ, why South Africa? And besides, you know, immense historical context of South Africa's experience of colonialism as well as apartheid, South Africa is a country saying that you could be any country. You could be, you know, the furthest geographically removed from a place. What is morally wrong, what, you know, what... Um, a legal team said at the ICJ, nothing justifies, nothing necessitates genocide. Mm. Moving on to that case in which uh, uh, we saw a wrap-up yesterday in the International Court of Justice and, uh, of course, uh, seeing a lot of mixed reviews uh, in terms of, you know, why South Africa took Israel to the International Court of Justice in the first place. Let's get uh, your perspective then when it comes uh, uh, to the international relations side of things. Uh, what do you uh, make of, uh, you know, this matter? Do you sum us saying that uh, South Africa has a strong case here and others are saying that, well, they think it's a bit of weak. You know, I think um, South Africa delivered a true legal masterclass um, in that case. It took apart every aspect of what is not only genocide by definition, but of course genocidal intent, giving evidence from, uh, you know, testimonies or statements given by United Nations officers um, and, and officials to using Israel, Israeli government official statements as, as well as the actions of the Israeli Defense Force or the IDF, you know, to prove um, the case of genocide. But also, you know, to be fair, Israel, you know, Israel put up a legal defense. Um, you know, they had their own evidence ranging from uh, the fact that, you know, they, they delivered pamphlets on the ground and, and, and used phone calls to warn people um, and, you know, quote unquote, did everything correctly on paper. But I think South Africa's, you know, I almost, it, it, it wouldn't be so far to say the world is on South Africa's side. And I think morally, from a moral and humanitarian standpoint, South Africa definitely won its case. Um, I think naturally, uh, the, you know, the, the 17 judge panel will, will have to, you know, deliver their deliberations in the coming weeks. But I think what is most important to remember is that not only was the case of genocide made, but South Africa, the uh, South African legal team emphasized the urgency behind its request for provisional measures, which fundamentally include a cessation of Israel's military campaign um, on the Gaza Strip and across all Palestinian occupied territories, which of course would necessitate, which would you know allow for humanitarian aid um, to, to fall yeah. through? Would potentially stop you know any famine, humanitarian yeah. crisis. So I think South Africa's definitely got the moral and humanitarian high ground here. Coming to South Africa's uh, position, then what does this mean uh, for South Africa's positioning? You know, uh, globally, some are saying that why is South Africa even getting involved in the first place? I think, you know, the people who say that fundamentally are, are missing an understanding of, of South Africa's foreign policy. Just because, for example, we are geographically removed from the, um, from the conflict itself, or, or perhaps we've got, you know, an election year coming up and, you know, it's our own domestic issues does not at all mean we cannot get involved or, you know, even on a diplomatic level to a conflict that speaks to our nation's conscience. Um, to, that speaks to our nation's moral history and um, and humanitarian purpose. 
I think, you, and that, that's something, you know, our, our Minister for Foreign Affairs, uh, Lady Pando, has made exceptionally clear. It is South Africa's, South Africa's moral and historical duty to stand up for, for the rights of Palestinians, especially when they cannot stand up for themselves, even on a diplomatic level. I think, naturally, it is a good consideration to think, how is this going to impact South Africa, you know, diplomatically on an, inter, uh, you know, on an international scale, even economically. And I think, um, uh, I think, you know, with the support of various countries, for example, like Cuba, like Turkey, like countries in the UAE, um, more countries are on our side and naturally on the side of Palestinians. So I think we're not on a back foot diplomatically. Um, and also, you know, I, I, I highly doubt with the, with the strength South Africa has on the African continent, we'll see any sort of economic ramifications. I think it's simply too soon to, to speak of that. And I think we should wait with bated breath, uh, uh, regarding the, de- the deliberations of the final judgment of the ICJ. Alaya, thank you so much uh, for your time uh, this evening. Truly appreciate it. That is uh, Alaya Vayer, international relations analyst, who is just giving us her analysis uh, when it comes uh, to what is taking place over the past couple of days. Of course, uh, being that case in the International Court of Justice, as well as some of uh, you know those uh, protests that we have seen uh, in the country uh, in solidarity with the people of Palestine. Welcome back, and uh, that was a report uh, on uh, people in the Republic of South Africa demonstrating outside the United States consulate in Cape Town, uh, demanding uh, that the United States shift its position vis-a-vis the State of Israel, uh, supporting, financing, facilitating uh, the genocide that is going on right now uh, in Palestine. This, of course, is headquartered uh, in Washington, D.C., and uh, on Wall Street in New York City. Another report uh, on uh, the outcome, the potential outcome of the International Court of Justice uh, case uh, filed uh, just two days ago uh, by the Republic of South Africa, the African National Congress government. Let's listen to this report. Israel has presented its defense at the International Court of Justice after South Africa argued it's committing genocide in Gaza. Its lawyers say the case is a distortion of the truth, but did they make a compelling argument? And what will come out of this unprecedented case? This is Inside Story. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Fully Batibo. A two-day public hearing of South Africa's genocide case against Israel at the International Court of Justice has concluded. South Africa laid out a list of genocidal acts by Israel on the first day of hearing on Thursday, while Israel defended itself on Friday. Now the court has begun deliberations. It will decide whether South Africa's case is strong enough to issue a provisional measure to stop the Israeli military's attacks on Gaza. So what's the likely outcome of this case and will it end the suffering of Palestinians? We'll get to our guests in just a moment, but first this report from Umiko Sum Sharif. None of these atrocities... Israel began its blistering attack on what it called a distorted case by South Africa. But if there have been acts that may be characterized as genocidal, then they have been per- perpetrated against Israel. 
In a three-hour-long session, Israel's lawyers argued the war in Gaza began after the Hamas attack on October 7th, and Israel has a right to defend itself. They rejected the accusation Israel's military operation in Gaza, which they say is aimed at eliminating Hamas and securing the release of captives, amounts to genocide. The Genocide Convention was a solemn promise made to the Jewish people and to all peoples of never again. The applicant, in effect, invites the court to betray that promise. If the term genocide can be so diminished in the way that it advocates, if provisional measures can be triggered in the way that it suggests, the Convention becomes an aggressor's charter. It will reward, indeed encourage, the terrorists who hide behind civilians. Israel's representative says the court has no jurisdiction over the complaints brought by South Africa because they relate to the laws of armed conflict and not genocide. The court lacks prima facie jurisdiction. On Thursday, South Africa argued the large-scale killing of civilians, mass expulsion and displacement of Palestinians and inciting statements made by several Israeli leaders all constitute genocide and show proof of intent. It filed a case in December arguing that Israel violated the 1948 Genocide Convention. The aerial and ground offensive in Gaza has killed more than 23,000 Palestinians so far, most of whom are women and children. The figures released by the Palestinian Health Ministry have been questioned by the Israeli team. But South Africa's lawyers indicated Israel's defense did not prove its case. I don't think that it was compelling. It didn't rebut any of the issues that we put forward to the court yesterday. Um, we've made, you know, the arguments around special intent of the week, um, arguing that statements um, from um, senior leaders, including Prime Minister Ismir Redrick, and it's part of freedom of speech, in the context of, 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 of a systemic violence, um, is something that we find astonishing. While well, South Africa and Israel argued their cases in court, Palestinian supporters rallied outside. Post-apartheid South Africa has long advocated for the Palestinian cause, and several countries have backed its case against Israel. The televised arguments in court were not watched by most Palestinians in Gaza. Dozens were still being killed in Israeli airstrikes and crowned operations at the time of the hearing. A full judgment determining whether Israel has committed genocide in Gaza could take years for the ICJ to determine. But the court can issue an interim measure in the meantime, ordering Israel to halt its attacks in Gaza. Umisulsum Sharif for Inside Story. Let's now bring in our guests in Cape Town, Kathy Powell, Associate Professor in Public Law at the University of Cape Town. In Istanbul, we have Hassan Ben Imran, a board member for Law for Palestine, a nonprofit human rights organization which records developments related to Palestine and international law. And in Dublin, Michael Becker, Assistant Professor of International Human Rights Law at Trinity College Dublin and a former staffer at the International Court of Justice. A warm welcome to you all. Thank you very much for joining us on Inside Story. So we're going to be fo focusing today on some of the Israeli defense arguments before we discuss the likely outcome of, of this case. 
at the ICJ. Hassan, let me start with you. Israel brought their best legal minds to The Hague, but did they bring their best arguments? What was it about their defense that struck you the most? Yeah. Uh, so to give some general preliminary examination, let's say, or, or observation about the Israeli argument, I think the Israeli defense was in a very bad, uh, difficult situation. Uh, they are defending an indefensible case, substantively. Uh, I think Israel offered no substantive case. Substantively, there was nothing, or close to nothing, offered by the Israeli defense. However, there was a great deal of concentration, a great deal of focus, on procedural law, on jurisdiction, on the procedures, on the technicalities, in order to preempt any conversation on the substance. Since the substance has been very clearly portrayed by South Africa, South Africa has relied on international sources, the UN, uh, other, uh, other organizations, uh, Doctors Without Borders, so on and so forth. That's one, one observation that, I, that struck me the most, which was not totally unexpected, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Another to be honest, more dangerous observation that I had about the Israeli defense yesterday is that it was somehow subtly appealing to the personal and political perceived inclinations of the judges, which is, which is something that made me very uncomfortable, to be honest. Okay. Uh, we, we understand that the, the, the ICJ, uh, or international law at large, is a mixture of law and politics. This is something that any legal practitioner knows by heart. Like, this is something that is very evident. International law is not the same like domestic law. There are much more complications. However, as far as the ICJ is concerned, it's the most prestigious court. Uh -huh. It's the, the judicial organ uh, of the United Nations. It has proved to be quite professional, I would say, in the way it deals with many issues. However, I, I hope this case won't be an exception in this particular regard. Okay. Uh, before we jump into any conclusions, I think this case offers a new element into the way that we see genocide doctrinally, legally. Okay, and, and we'll be picking, picking up some of the, the, the arguments and, and discussing them in more detail. Let me get Michael's general overview first of Israel's defense. Uh, did Israel, in, in your view, Michael, make a compelling argument in response to South Africa's genocide case? Was it able to provide any uh, solid arguments on the basis of fact and law? It's very important to understand what was happening in this hearing because this wasn't a hearing on the overall merits of the case, on the overall allegations that South Africa is making under the Genocide Convention. Mm -hmm. This was a hearing specifically focused on whether or not South Africa has satisfied the requirements to convince the court to issue these provisional measures. So Israel's task uh, yesterday was not only to lay out its uh, overall rejection of South Africa's claims, but it had to specifically um, try to uh, rebut the points that are specific to provisional measures. And where I thought Israel was most effective was to make the case very clearly that it would be problematic for the courts to accede to South Africa's request for a complete and immediate suspension of military operations in Gaza. Israel's argument here was that it continues to face a very serious ongoing threat from Hamas mm -hmm. and that the court can't put Israel in a position where it simply cannot defend itself. 
So that goes less to whether or not the court should indicate provisional measures and more to the question of exactly what those measures should be. So on that specific point, I thought Israel probably did what it needed to do. And when, where do you think they were, they were ineffective, on the merits. Where, where, do you think they were in, where do you think they were ineffective in, in their argument? Well, I think that uh, the hearing yesterday really brought to a fore what's going to be the, the, a major issue in the case. And that's this gap between, or perceived gap, between what Israel says it's doing and what all the evidence emerging from what's happening on the ground seems to tell us, which seems to tell us a very different story. So uh, Israel reiterated in the hearing that it takes international humanitarian law very seriously, that it does everything that it can to avoid civilian casualties while fighting an enemy, Hamas, that will flout international law at every opportunity, and that Israel is doing everything it can to deliver humanitarian aid. But those assertions are very difficult to reconcile with the widespread reports of Indeed, indeed. Kathy, let me bring you into the conversation. The first argument that Israel fundamentally made was that South Africa is the legal arm of Hamas and that therefore they have no credibility uh, in, in making uh, this case to the ICJ. Do you think they offered any legitimate evidence that South Africa is operating as a proxy of Hamas, as they claim, and what did you thought was effective and ineffective in, in the arguments they presented? The claim that South Africa is acting as a legal arm of Hamas is uh, basically irrelevant, mm -hmm. even if it were true. Even if, 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 if South Africa is sitting taking orders from Hamas, what the court has to decide is the merits of the case that South Africa brings. South Africa is a state that has a right under the Genocide Convention to bring this case. Uh, accusing it of bias is not really getting our argument very further. We need to apply the law mm. rather than questioning the motives of the, the state bringing the case. So that, that argument was just a bit irritating, uh, to be frank. It, it's a red herring. Um, the most effective part of Israel's argument, I agree with Michael that uh, the defense specifically about provisional measures was very nuanced and careful and occasionally compelling. Mm -hmm. um, it was also uh, produced an unexpected ace when it spoke about the steps that South Africa and it claimed Israel had taken to sort out the dispute between the two countries. Yes. I can't comment on which side was factually correct because I don't know what steps were taken. But if it is true that South Africa in effect made no attempt to get Israel to respond to it on its complaints about Israel's uh, allegedly genocidal acts, that may have a bearing on whether the court has jurisdiction at all. It in effect gives the court a kind of a backdoor if it wants to dodge the issue entirely. But I, I think what ended up being the most pressing issue substantively is how we deal with the relationship between self-defense and genocide. Uh -huh. okay. And both South African and, and Israeli advocates played with this issue, and I think it's an interesting one to explore. Okay, before I bring uh, Hassan in, back into the conversation to ask you about the, the question of genocidal intent, Hassan. Kathy, let me just pick up on what you, you said there about the question of jurisdiction. Uh, Israel arguing that, that, South, Africa, that, that South, Africa, South Africa did not make interactions with it, that they had the opportunity to solve the dispute. Does the law require that they 
solve the dispute before taking it to the International Court of Justice? It requires that they attempt to resolve it. Mm -hmm. So what the Genocide Convention says is that disputes under the convention can be referred to the ICJ. And the case law of the ICJ is quite particular about what the word dispute means. And in particular, it requires some form of engagement between the two parties. It does say, the case law of the ICJ, and South Africa relied on this, that a dispute will result when one state says X and the other state says the opposite. Mm -hmm. But other case law of the ICJ has also emphasized that there's got to be some interaction between the two states on that disagreement. And it's possible that South Africa wasn't careful enough on this step. I, I simply can't answer that on the facts. Okay. Hassan, on the question of genocidal intent, the Israelis said there's no genocidal intent and that the statements made by Israeli political military leaders are simply rhetorical and that we shouldn't ascribe them any importance, that there's no evidence, basically, that there, there is genocidal intent from, from Israel. Yeah. Your thoughts about this argument, and what do you think could undermine this claim? Um, all right. Uh, I would be very happy to comment uh, on the issue of self-defense as well that was brought up after commenting on the issue of intent, because I think it's a very uh, important discussion to have for the provisional mm -hmm. measures in particular. Uh, but uh, regarding uh, intent, the question of Mandria, whether uh, Israel has provided a special, uh, specific special intent uh, to destroy Palestinians or the protected group in total or in part. Uh, one way to learn this one, historically speaking, through the previous case law, through the jurisprudence of the court, as well as the different tribunals, is the statements of the leader. But that was not the only way forward. Speaking of the statements, South Africa did document some quite good, well-documented sources or, or uh, incidents of incitement. However, it could have been better. Why better? Because Israel has had an extreme unrestrained campaign of genocidal intent. We in Law for Palestine have released few days before the hearing a database of 500 plus statements, genocidal statements by Israeli leaders, the chain of command, the, 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 the war cabinet, the, 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 the expanded uh, cabinet, the Knesset, the army soldiers, the, the former army soldiers, the heads of the, the intelligence bodies. We're talking about the joints of the state. Now someone mm -hmm. will tell me, okay, but these are not the ones they're making the decision about this one. Okay, what about the punishment? that South Africa spoke out of, what about the prevention that South Africa spoke about? So as far as the statements are, are provided, I think there is no any other genocidal case that has been well documented like this one in terms of intent. That's one. And I would be, I think Al Jazeera will be covering uh, the, 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 the database that we have published a few days before the hearing. That's one thing. Another yeah. thing with regards to intent is that intent is not just about the statement. Like, why are we expecting that everyone who wants to commit genocide will come and say, hey, guys, I'm committing a genocide. Also, the issue of inference that was uh, very clearly stated in different tribunals, including uh, the, the Yugoslavia one. The issue of inference, like when you block the water, electricity, uh, when you destroy the healthcare system, right. South Africa documented 11 partial hospital functions. When you destroy culture, like there, there is inference based on certain actions that we could discuss further and further, including ethnic cleansing. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. which is very uh, excluded from this discussion, and I, I okay. believe it should be included to the question of Mandria. We, yeah, indeed, there are a lot of other issues, yeah. of course, that need to be included. But, yeah. Michael, let me yeah. get your thoughts briefly about genocidal intent before I ask you about Germany and its actions uh, wanting to support uh, this case uh, against Israel, wanting to support Israel uh, at the ICJ. On the question of genocidal intent, first of all, how direct and clear does genocidal intent have to be? Genocidal intent remains very difficult to prove, even in situations where we might have abundant evidence of atrocities or where it's very clear that other types of international law violations are taking place. So it's it's entirely true that in this case, we have the unusual circumstance of this body of evidence of direct statements that South Africa has pointed to that could be read as expressing directly genocidal intent, but that's going to be fiercely contested. Israel will come back and explain why at least some of those very problematic statements uh, have been misunderstood or taken out of context or can't be attributed to the state. But that's a big part of the case. But it will have to be connect- connected, exactly as Asana said, to that on-the-ground evidence from which genocidal intent can be inferred. The difficulty there is that if you're going to infer genocidal intent from contextual or circumstantial evidence, this has to be the only inference that can be arrived at. That's the court's test. And that means that any time you have allegations of genocide in a context of armed conflict or counterterrorism, it becomes even more difficult to meet that very high threshold. But that's at the merits. That's not what South Africa had to show at this stage of the case. Uh, Germany, uh, Michael, let me ask you about Germany. They've announced that they would speak in Israel's defense as a third party uh, at the ICJ, denying charges that Israel's committing genocide in Gaza. How much weight will this add to Israel's defense? Right. So any party to the genocide convention under a particular procedural mechanism can uh, come into the case as a non-party intervener later. Germany has said they're going to do that and that they are going to uh, offer their interpretation of the convention in support of Israel's position. Uh, that can sometimes uh, add uh, legal value to the case, depending on what the state comes in and says. But what's really interesting about Germany's intervention here is that Germany, along with a handful of other states, also recently intervened in a different genocide convention case in front of the court. That's the case that the Gambia has brought against Myanmar. Mm-hmm. And that declaration is already in front of the court and sets forth Germany's position on how various provisions of the Genocide Convention should be interpreted, and in particular, that very important question of genocidal intent, where Germany and other states essentially are urging the court to take what I would describe as a slightly less restrictive approach to how you reach that standard. Okay. Kathy, your thoughts about Germany uh, saying that it would speak in Israel's defense. Do you think this will hurt or, or help Israel in its defense? It's going to depend entirely on the strength of the argument that it brings. But I'm interested to hear from Michael that Germany has already uh, motivated for a more generous interpretation of the Genocide Convention, Uh which is the very thing Israel is arguing against in this case. Um, I, I think that... A lot of this is going to boil down to the genocidal intent, and right. it's going to boil down to whether general, genocidal intent in effect negates the claim of self-defense, uh, because that is the argument that South Africa made on Thursday, that mm-hmm. even if 
Well, it, that was, it wasn't about self-defense specifically. It was about whether the laws of war are being complied with. Von Lowe said even if Israel is complying with the laws of war, if it is doing so with genocide or contempt, it, it has no excuse. It, it, we've got genocide and there is no justification okay. for genocide. Now, Kathy, yeah. Kathy, for the moment, the court, again, just to clarify for our viewers, is not deciding on the question of genocidal intent. It's going to be ruling on the provisional measures, right? South Africa has requested that Israel uh, or, uh, suspend its military op operations, and we should know in a few weeks, I guess, about the provisional measures. Now, my question is, even if the court rules in favor of the provisional measures. It doesn't have its own enforcement mechanism. We know, for example, that the court ordered Russia to seize its military operations uh, against uh, Ukraine, but that didn't happen, right? So what does this case achieve ultimately, these provisional measures? If the court rules in favor of the provisional measures, will it make any difference? I, I will answer that, but may I just quickly point out that genocidal intent remains relevant even now because mm -hmm. South Africa has to make a prima facie case for, uh, for genocide. So um, whether genocide and self-defense cancel each other out remains important even now. Um, but on your question of enforcement, yeah. no, you're, you're quite right. The ICJ doesn't have its own police force. The only institution it can, re it can rely on if a state refuses to comply with it is the Security Council. And we know, because the United States is a permanent member with veto power on the Security Council, that the Security Council is not going to do anything either. So the, the force of provisional measures from the ICJ is going to be moral. It's going to affect morals, Israel's moral standing in the global community because it, in order to issue any provisional measures, no matter how weak, it will have made a preliminary finding that there is a prima facie case that Israel is committing genocide. And that in itself is enough to affect Israel's negotiation with other parties in this conflict. I think we must also bear in mind that Israel has started to allow humanitarian aid in, has started to claim that it's abiding with IHL, has started to to be a lot more careful with civilians and set up hospitals, most of it in the wake of South Africa bringing this case. So in a way, even before the provisional measures are handed down, assuming they do get handed down, the case has already made a difference. Mm. It hasn't stopped the armed conflict, and it might not. We might not get provisional measures for a ceasefire. But we have already got Israel having to answer in a public forum for, in particular, the worst of the genocidal statements that South Africa identified on Thursday. Hassan, do you agree with Cathy that the case has already made a difference, even if we, we don't know what uh, the court will rule on the provisional measures yet? Now we're discussing something about provisional measures. And as Michael uh, said in the beginning, provisional measures are now what's being discussed in the hearing mm -hmm. for a ceasefire somehow. I mean, that's not the language of the South African application, but that's what could be inferred. The provisional measures intended purpose is to stop the war. Yeah. Failing, failing to advance the provisional measures would really put the whole international law uh, would bring the whole international legal system to trial, not just Israel. But now about the, the issue of enforceability or the issue of impact, of impact. We know that Israel has a long track and record of not respecting any court. Like, maybe this is the first time they, accept, they agree to appear before a court because of the, the uh, serious nature of the, of the situation, I, I, I mean the, the accusations against them. Uh, but we know that they haven't respected any decisions by the United Nations Security Council, General Assembly, the advisory opinions of this very course, and they even dismissed 
the ICC previously as anti-Semitic, the investigation, uh, we know that Israel would not respect. However, many of its allies who provided coverage, who provided cover, the, the military, uh, financial, media cover, the moral cover somehow for Israel to continue, would be concerned about being involved in such a case that has been decided upon by a court. Uh, for Canada, it might be uh, like we see the Canadian, Canadian statement while rejecting the South African claims. They could not make uh, any any negative con- comments on the court. Mm-hmm. The same applies for the countries of the European Union. The same applies for the UK, uh, who, against who the uh, against which the, the court judged once. Uh, this might not be the case for for Israel and some of its allies, but for the right. majority, it would create an impact and would, it would pressure them to act in a certain way. Okay, Michael, your thoughts. What do you think is likely to be the outcome of this case? Will provisional measures be issued? And what will be, you know, the effect, the impact for, for Palestinians in Gaza? Well, I think it is likely that the court will, will issue the provisional measures. But it's really important to understand that the court isn't restricted by what South Africa has asked for exactly. They don't have to say just yes or no to the different requests South Africa has made, which aren't limited to this point about ceasing military operations. I think the court will want to address the military operations in some way, but will need to come up with some other formulation, maybe something along the lines of Israel needs to ensure that any continuing military operations are in compliance with its other obligations under international law, including the Genocide Convention. And I think there will be other provisional measures directed at uh, the specific question of ensuring that Israel doesn't impede or indeed facilitates uh, the delivery of the necessary and effective humanitarian assistance. There are other measures as well that might involve uh, preservation of evidence, for example. In terms of enforcement, uh, what Kathy has said is, is exactly right. Um, in theory, you could go to the Security Council, but the Security Council is actually never really involved in enforcing ICJ decisions. The value of whatever the, the court decides here is mm-hmm. that other states can then draw upon that to try to um, increase the diplomatic pressure on Israel to change its conduct in various ways. And my mm-hmm. last point would be that even if Israel comes out and says, we disavow what the ICJ has said, we reject this decision, what Israel says publicly may not align entirely right. with what Israel is doing behind the scenes. Okay. And Kathy's exactly right. I think the fact of the case even being brought has already uh, produced some effects. Okay. And the same could be said whatever the court decides. Thank you so much for a very insightful, very informative discussion. Thank you, Hassan Ben Imran, Kathy Powell, Michael Becker. Thank you to all three of you. And thank you as well for watching. You can always watch this program again anytime by visiting our website at aljazeera.com. For further discussion, go to our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash AJ Inside Story. And of course, you can join the conversation on X. Our handle is at AJ Inside Story. From me, Fully Batibon, the whole team here in Doha. Thanks for watching. Bye for now. That was a report, the panel discussion uh, on uh, the Republic of South Africa, the African National Congress government lawsuit against the state of Israel uh, for violation of the Genocide Convention. And uh, you're listening to the Pan African Journal. Worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, uh, January 13th, uh, 2024. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment of our program.
might feel it flat But that's no reason to hold me back
Welcome back. And that was the Temptations, uh, the Motown sound, Detroit's own tempting temptation uh, with the track and title message uh, to the black man. And Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, his 95th uh, birthday posthumously will be Monday, uh, which is a federal holiday inside the United States, a holiday that was fought for and struggled over for many years, uh, led uh, by the African-American people. And uh, we're going to listen to a speech, a rare archival address that was delivered Labor Day weekend, uh, late August, uh, early September 1967 in Chicago, Illinois, at the National Conference for New Politics. Dr. King addresses many of the issues, of course, that led uh, to his martyrdom, the necessity of ending poverty, racism, and militarism and perilous militarism. Let's listen to this address uh, from Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Mr. Chairman, friends and brothers in this first gathering of the National Conference on New Politics, ladies and gentlemen, can you hear me in the back? I don't know if the Klan is in here tonight or not with all the trouble we're having with these microphones. (laughs) And seldom, if ever, has, we're still working with it. As I was about to say, seldom, if ever, has such a diverse and a truly ecumenical gathering convened under the aegis of politics in our nation. And I want to commend the leadership of the National Conference on New Politics for all of the great work that they have done in making this significant convention possible. Indeed, by our very nature, we affirm that something new is taking place on the American political horizon. We have come here from the dusty plantations of the Deep South and the depressing ghettos of the North. We have come from the great universities and the flourishing suburbs. We have come from Appalachian poverty and from conscience-stricken wealth, but we have come. And we have come here because we shared a common concern for the moral health of our nation. We have come because our eyes have seen through the superficial glory 
and glitter of our society and observe the coming of judgment. Like the prophet of old, we have read the handwriting on the wall. We have seen our nation weighed in the balance of history and found wanting. We have come because we see this as a dark hour in the affairs of men. For most of us, this is a new mood. We are traditionally the idealists. We are the marchers from Mississippi and Selma and Washington who staked our lives on the American dream during the first half of this decade. Many assembled here campaigned deciduously for Lyndon Johnson in 1964 because we could not stand idly by and watch our nation contaminated by the 18th century policies of Goldwaterism. We were the hardcore activists who were willing to believe that Southerners could be reconstructed in the constitutional image. We were the dreamers of a dream that dark yesterdays of man's inhumanity to man would soon be transformed into bright tomorrows of justice. Now it is hard to escape the disillusionment of betrayal. Our hopes have been blasted and our dreams have been shattered. The promise of a great society was shipwrecked off the coast of Asia on the dreadful peninsula of Vietnam. The poor black and white. The poor black and white are still perishing on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. What happens to a dream deferred. It leads to bewildering frustration and corroding bitterness. I came to see this in a personal experience here in Chicago last summer. And all the speaking that I have done in the United States before varied audiences, including some hostile whites, the only time that I have ever been booed was one night in our regular weekly mass meeting by some angry young men of our movement. I went home that night with an ugly feeling. Selfishly, I thought of my sufferings and sacrifices over the last 12 years. Why would they boo one so close to them? But as I lay awake thinking, I finally came to myself. And I could not for the life of me have less than patience and understanding for those young men. For 12 years I and others like me had held out radiant promises of progress. I had preached to them about my dream. I had lectured to them about the not too distant day when they would have freedom all here now. I had urged them to have faith in America and in white society. Their hopes had soared. They were now booing me because they felt that we were unable to deliver on our promises. 
They were born because we had urged them to have faith in people who had too often proved to be unfaithful. They were now hostile because they were watching the dream that they had so readily accepted turn into a frustrating nightmare. This situation is all the more ominous in view of the rising expectations of men the world over. The deep rumblings that we hear today, the rumbling of discontent, is the thunder of disinherited masses rising from dungeons of oppression to the bright hills of freedom. All over the world, like a fever, freedom is spreading in the widest liberation movement in history. The great masses of people are determined to end the exploitation of our races and lands. And in one majestic chorus, they are singing in the words of our freedom song, ain't gonna let nobody turn us around. And so the collision course is set. The people cry for freedom, and the Congress attempts to legislate repression. Millions, yes, billions, are appropriated for mass murder. But the most meager pittance of foreign aid for international development is crushed in the surge of reaction. Unemployment rages at a major depression level in the black ghettos. But the bipartisan response is an anti-riot bill rather than a serious poverty program. <laughs> the modest proposals for model cities rent supplement and rat control, pitiful as they were to begin with, get caught in the maze of congressional inaction. And I submit to you tonight that a Congress that proves to be more anti-Negro than anti-rat needs to be dismissed. It seems that our legislative assemblies have adopted Nero as their patron saint and are bent on fiddling while our cities burn. <laughs> Even when the people persist and in the face of great obstacles develop indigenous leadership and self-help approaches to their problems, and finally tread the forest of bureaucracy to obtain existing government funds. The corrupt political order seeks to crush even this beginning of hope. The case of CDGM in Mississippi is the most publicized example. 
but it is a story repeated many times across our nation. Our own experience here in Chicago is especially painful at present. After an enthusiastic approval by HEW's Department of Adult Education, SCLC began an adult literacy project to aid 1,000 young men and women who have been pushed out of overcrowded ghetto schools in obtaining basic, basically literacy skills prerequisite to receiving jobs. We had an agreement with A&P stores for 750 jobs through SCLC's job program, Operation Breadbasket, and had recruited over 500 pupils the first week. At that point, Congressman Kuczynski and the Daily Machine intervened and demanded that Washington cut off our funds or channel them through the machine control poverty program in Chicago. Now we have no problem with administrative supervision, but we do have a desire to be independent of machine control and the Democratic Party patronage network. For this desire for a politically independent approach to the needs of our brothers, our funds are being stopped as of September 15th, and a very meaningful program discontinued. Yes, the hour is dark. Evil comes forth in the guise of good. It is a time of double talk when men in high places have a high blood pressure of deceptive rhetoric and an anemia of concrete performance. We crowd against welfare handouts to the poor, but generously approve an oil depletion allowance to make the rich richer. Six Mississippi plantations receive more than a million dollars a year not to plant cotton, but no provision is made to feed the tenant farmer who is put out of work by the government subsidy. Crowning achievement in hypocrisy must go to those staunch Republicans and Democrats of the Midwest and West who were given land by our government when they came here as immigrants from Europe. They were given education through the land-grant colleges. They were provided with agricultural agents to keep them abreast of farming trends. They were granted low-interest loans to aid in the mechanization of their farms. And now that they have succeeded in becoming successful, they are paid not to farm. And these are the same people who now say to black people whose ancestors were brought to this country in chains, 
and who were emancipated in 1863 without being given land to cultivate or bread to eat, that they must pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. What What they truly advocate is socialism for the rich and capitalism for the poor. I wish that I could say that this is just a passing phase in the cycle of our nation's life. Certainly times of war, times of reaction throughout the society. But I suspect that we are now experiencing the coming to the surface of a triple-pronged sickness that has been lurking within our body politic from its very beginning. That is the sickness of racism, excessive materialism and militarism. Not only is this our nation's dilemma, it is the plague of Western civilization. As early as 1906, W.E.B. Du Bois prophesied that the problem of the 20th century will be the problem of the color line. Now as we stand two-thirds into this crucial period of history, we know full well that racism is still that hound of hell which dogs the tracks of our civilization. Ever since the birth of our nation, white America has had a schizophrenic personality on the question of race. She has been torn between cells, a self in which she proudly professed the great principles of democracy and a self in which she madly practiced the antithesis of democracy. This tragic duality has produced a strange indecisiveness and ambivalence toward the Negro, causing America to take a step backward simultaneously with every step forward on the question of racial justice. To be at once attracted to the Negro and repelled by him, to love and to hate him. There has never been a solid, unified, and determined thrust to make justice a reality for Afro-Americans. The step backward has a new name today. It is called the White Backlash. But the white backlash is nothing new. It is the surfacing of old prejudices, hostilities, and ambivalences that have always been there. It was caused neither, it was caused neither by the cry of black power, nor by the unfortunate re recent wave of riots in our cities. The white backlash of today is rooted in the same problem that has characterized America ever since the black man landed in chains on the shores of this nation. This does not imply that all white Americans are racist. Far from it. 
many white people have through a deep moral compulsion fought long and hard for racial justice. Nor does it mean that America has made no progress in her attempt to cure the body politic of the disease of racism, or that the dogma of racism has not been considerably modified in recent years. However, for the good of America, it is necessary to refute the idea that the dominant ideology in our country even today is freedom and equality, while racism is just an occasional departure from the norm on the part of a few bigoted extremists. Racism can well be that corrosive evil that will bring down the curtain on Western civilization. Arnold Tornby has said that some 26 civilizations have risen upon the face of the earth. Almost all of them have descended into the junk heaps of destruction. The decline and fall of these civilizations, according to Tornby, was not caused by external invasions, but by internal decay. They failed to respond creatively to the challenges impinging upon them. If America does not respond creatively to the challenge to banish racism, some future historian will have to say that a great civilization died because it lacked the soul and commitment to make justice a reality for all men. The second aspect of our afflicted society is extreme materialism. An Asian writer has portrayed our dilemma in candid terms. He says, you call your thousand material devices labor-saving machinery, yet you are forever busy with the multiplying of your machinery. You grow increasingly fatigued, anxious, nervous dissatisfied. Whatever you have, you want more. And wherever you are, you want to go somewhere else. Your devices are neither time-saving nor soul-saving machinery. There are so many sharp spurs which urge you on to invent more machinery and to do more business. This tells us something about our civilization that cannot be cast aside as a prejudiced charge by an Eastern thinker who is jealous of Western prosperity. We cannot escape the indictment. This does not mean that we must turn back the clock of scientific progress. No one can overlook the wonders that science has wrought for our lives. The automobile will not abdicate in favor of the horse and buggy of the train in favor of the stagecoach, of the tractor in favor of the hand plow, of the scientific method in favor of ignorance and superstition. But our moral lag must be redeemed when scientific power outruns moral power. We end up with guided missiles and misguided men.
when we foolishly maximize the minimum and minimize the maximum, we sign the warrant for our own day of doom. It is this moral lag in our thing-oriented society that blinds us to the human realities around us and encourages us in the greed and exploitation which create the sector of poverty in the midst of wealth. Again, we have deluded ourselves into believing the myth that capitalism grew and prospered out of the Protestant ethic of hard work and sacrifice. The fact is that capitalism was built on the exploitation and suffering of black slaves. and continues to thrive on the exploitation of the poor, both black and white, both here and abroad. If Negroes and poor whites do not participate in the free flow of wealth within our economy, they will forever be poor giving their energy, their talents, and their limited funds to the consumer market, but reaping few benefits and services in return. The way to end poverty is to end the exploitation of the poor, ensure them, ensure them a fair share of the government's services and the nation's resources. I propose recently that a national agency be established to provide employment for everyone needing it. Nothing is more socially inexcusable than unemployment in this age. In the 30s, when the nation was bankrupt, it instituted such an agency, the WPA. In the present conditions of a nation glutted with resources, it is barbarous to condemn people desiring work to soul-sapping inactivity and poverty. And I am convinced that even this one massive act of concern would do more than all the state police and armies of the nation to quell riots and still hatreds. And the tragedy is that our materialistic culture does not possess the statesmanship necessary to do it. Victor Hugo could have been thinking of 20th century America when he wrote, there's always more misery among the lower classes than there is humanity in the higher classes. <laughs> the time has come for America to face the inevitable choice between materialism and humanism, we must devote at least as much to our children's education and the health of the poor as we do to the care of our automobiles and the building of beautiful, impressive hotels. <laughs> we must also realize that the problems of racial injustice and economic injustice cannot be solved 
without a radical redistribution of political and economic power. We must further recognize that the ghetto is a domestic colony. Black people must develop programs that will aid in the transfer of power and wealth into the hands of residents of the ghetto so that they may in reality control their own destinies. This is the meaning of new politics. People of goodwill in the larger community must support the black man in this effort. The final phase of our national sickness is the disease of militarism. Nothing more clearly demonstrates our nation's abuse of military power than our tragic adventure in Vietnam. This war has played havoc with the destiny of the entire world. It has torn up the Geneva Agreement. It has seriously impaired the United Nations. It has exacerbated the hatred between continents and, worse still, between races. It has frustrated our development of home, at home, telling our own underprivileged citizens that we place insatiable military demands above their most critical needs. It has greatly contributed to the forces of reaction in America and strengthened the military-industrial complex. And it has practically destroyed Vietnam and left thousands of American and Vietnamese youth maimed and mutilated and expose the whole world to the risk of nuclear warfare. Above all, the war in Vietnam has revealed what Senator Fulbright calls our nation's arrogance of power. We are arrogant in professing to be concerned about the freedom of foreign nations while not setting our own house in order. Many of our senators and congressmen vote joyously to appropriate billions of dollars for the war in Vietnam. And many of these same senators and congressmen vote loudly against the Fair Housing Bill to make it possible for a Negro veteran of Vietnam to purchase a decent home. We arm Negro soldiers to kill on foreign battlefields, but offer little protection for their relatives from beatings and killings in our own South. We are willing to make the Negro 100% of a citizen in warfare, but reduce him to 50% of a citizen on American soil. No war in our nation's history has ever been so violative of our conscience, our natural, national interests, and so destructive of our moral standing before the world. 
No enemy has ever been able to cause such damage to us as we inflict upon ourselves. The inexorable decay of our urban centers has flared into terrifying domestic conflict as the pursuit of foreign war absorbs our wealth and energy. Squalor and poverty scar our cities as our military might destroy cities in a far-off land to support oligarchy to intervene in domestic conflict. The president who cherishes consensus for peace has intensified the war. In answer to a cry to stop the war, it has brought tauntingly to one minute's flying time from China to a moment before the midnight of world conflagration. We are offered a tax for war instead of a plan for peace. Men of reason should no longer debate the merits of war or means of financing war. They should end the war and restore sanity and humanity to American policy. If the will of the people continues to be unheeded, all men of goodwill must create a situation in which the 1967-68 elections are made a referendum on the war. The American people... The American people must have an opportunity to vote into oblivion those who cannot detach themselves from militarism and those who lead us and so we are here because we believe we hope we pray that something new might emerge in the political life of this nation which will produce a new man new structures and institutions and a new life for mankind. I am convinced that this new life will not emerge until our nation undergoes a radical revolution of values. When machines, when machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, economic exploitation and militarism are incapable of being conquered. A civilization can flounder as readily in the face of moral bankruptcy as it can through financial bankruptcy. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. We are called to play the Good Samaritans on life's roadside but that will only be an initial act. One day the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be beaten and robbed as they make their journey through life. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It understands that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring.
A true revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth. With righteous indignation, it will look at thousands of working people displaced from their jobs with reduced income as a result of automation, while the profits of the employers remain intact and say this is not just. It will look across the oceans and see individual capitalists of the West invest in huge sums of money in Asia and Africa only to take the profits out with no concern for the social betterment of the countries and say this is not just. It will look at our alliance with the landed gentry of Latin America and say this is not just. A true revolution of values will lay hands on the world order and say of war, this way of settling differences is not just. This business of burning human beings with napalm, of filling our nation's homes with orphans and widows, of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into the veins of peoples normally humane, of sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields physically handicapped and psychologically deranged, cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love, a nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. So what we must all see is that these are revolutionary times. All over the globe, men are revolting against old systems of exploitation. And out of the wounds of a frail world, new systems and of justice and equality are being born. The shirtless and barefoot people of earth are rising up as never before. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. We in the West must support these revolutions. It is a sad fact that because of comfort, complacency, a morbid fear of communism, and our proneness to adjust to injustice, the Western nations that initiated so much of the revolutionary spirit of the modern world have now become the arch-anti-revolutionaries. This has driven many to feel that only Marxism has the revolutionary spirit. Communism is a judgment. And in a sense, communism is a judgment of our failure to make democracy real and to follow through on the revolutions that we initiated. Our only hope today lies in our ability to recapture the revolutionary spirit and go out into a sometimes hostile world declaring eternal opposition to poverty, racism, and militarism. With this powerful commitment, we shall boldly challenge the status quo and unjust mores and thereby speed the day when every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low, 
and the crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. May I say in conclusion that that is a need now more than ever before for men and, win, men and women in our nation to be creatively maladjusted. Welcome back. Uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., <clears throat> delivering a major address uh, at the National Conference for New Politics <clears throat> held in Chicago over the Labor Day weekend in 1967, uh, some seven months prior uh, to the assassination of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. And that's going to conclude uh, our program uh, for today. You've been listening to the Pan-African Journal worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Saturday, uh, January 13th, 2024. Uh, we've been broadcasting uh, live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. And if you'd like to have access to, to this program, uh, just go uh, to our website, and that is at the Pan-African Radio Network. Uh, that's at blogtalkradio.com. Uh, forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And um, if you'd like to have access to the Pan-African Newswire, uh, where uh, you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com that's panafricannews.blogspot.com we'll conclude uh, our program uh, with uh, Jimi Hendrix uh, performing live at the Isle of Wight on August 31st of 1970 uh, in the United Kingdom this is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off and have a beautiful week (laughs) 